break it up. He tried to do the entire thing, I think, for the most part, right, from what I see. The problem is there's too much material in there. And so um, if we go back and do it here, the second thing, I want to be absolutely explicit. It's not because I'm looking back and saying, oh, Scott didn't do a good job. <laughs> or, you know, I don't trust what Scott did, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, do that. Uh, uh, the subject matter, even if I had done it, is what I'm saying, is I probably would have broken it up into two. So what I want to do is read the question again. And because I was not here, not, did not hear everything he said, I'm, uh, I just want to also be sure I'm not going to um, go over the same stuff twice and bore you guys. But usually, the topic of election um, provides plenty of fodder material. So let's go ahead and read the question. Would somebody uh, just read that and the answer as well? And that way we'll get started. Number 20. All right. Thank you so much. So here we are. So what you see in this question, folks, we've been dealing for several weeks, and the questions have been dealing with the fact that we have fallen into this condition, this estate of sin and misery, all because of our sin in Adam, uh, original sin that was imputed to us, and it puts us into this condition of misery, of suffering, of uh, lack of righteousness, and so on. So we've been looking at that for several weeks. Now the catechism turns towards salvation and what it is that God's going to do about it. And so it basically says, no, God did not go ahead and leave us in that condition, but he acts to pull, about, uh, pull us out. So I'm going to hit some highlights, stuff that I greatly suspect Scott already covered, and I'm not going to try to uh, repeat. And then we'll maybe t- take a little, somewhat deeper dive on the election thing. But the things that just by way of review that stand out is, who is it that takes the initiative in our salvation? According to this question, it's God. So we're stuck in this state of sin and misery. God is the one who takes the initiative. Uh, he's the one who then, uh, as it says here, does what is necessary to bring us into a new condition, a new estate, and that of salvation. Several things stand out. It is salvation by a redeemer. So our salvation is not only initiated by God, but it comes from elsewhere. Now, we need to just stop there because immediately that puts Christianity at odds with every other religion that exists and every other self-help philosophy or ideology that exists. Think about it. Secular humanism, that's a philosophy, that's an ideology. It basically says we have to be smarter and we have to behave better. We have to do that, and if we do that, we will change the world, right? Progress and all this other stuff. Uh, You see it every time. You see an activist on TV talking about climate change or this or that or save the whales, whatever the case may be. I'm not knocking those things necessarily. I'm just saying the thing is the power lies within us. We are responsible for altering our behavior and the way we think. Actually, the other way around, behave the way, uh, change the way you think, and therefore you change the way you behave, and therefore we save ourselves and save the planet and save creation. That's secular humanism in a nutshell. Take every other philosophy and ideology that's out there, same thing. Take over every other major world religion. doesn't matter what it is. So you could be looking at Hinduism. You can be looking at Buddhism. You could be looking at Shintoism, Confucianism, uh, Islam. And every last one, it's what you do that moves the ball forward. The very first thing you see here is that your salvation has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God taking the initiative and God working through a redeemer, which is 
the subject of the next question. Okay, so again, this is just by way of review, basic stuff from the, um, uh, from the catechism. So uh, when we look at that last section, uh, salvation by a redeemer, immediately draws our mind to Romans 3.21. Let's take a peek at Romans 3.21. In fact, I'll ask if somebody gets there, uh, read Romans 3.21 and 22. Whoever gets there first, you're the person predestined before the foundation of the world to read. So Romans 3, 21, 22. There we are. By the way, I'm curious, what translation are you reading out of? Ah, so you... Okay, the, the New Living Translation. And there they're very generous with the word translation. Um, uh, it's... it's um, <laughs> no, I, I, I would use, uh, okay, I'm not quite sure I would ever use the NLT, but if I were going to use it for something, I would use it um, to give insight to something that might not be as clear. So, topic for another day, that is actually, I, I remember when the translators worked on it, they had produced a Bible called the Living Bible, you guys remember that? It was a paraphrase, and they admitted that it was a paraphrase, um, and came out in the early 70s, and uh, Billy Graham Crusades would hand out the Living Bible. Originally, they were handing out the, uh, the Good News Bible, uh, which wasn't called that back then. It was called the um, Today's English Version. It's mostly in New Testament at the time. So when they came out with the Living Bible, um, Billy Graham was handing it out, and it was very understandable and so on. Like all paraphrases, a paraphrase basically tries to explicate and add stuff that's not in the text to make it clear, um, that kind of thing. There was a, a, a surge of translations in the late 80s to about 2001. The ESV was the last of those major ones. Uh, but you had the New Revised Standard Version. You had the New King James Version. A whole bunch of others. Right around 88, 89, 90, New Jerusalem Bible, all these through the 90s. And Tyndale looked and said, everybody's making money but us. And, and we don't have any property. Oh, wait, we have the Living Bible. So they took it. They tightened it up a little bit. It wasn't as paraphrastic as before. And they called it the New Living Translation. And it was so bad, it got knocked even by people who like loose translations. Um, so they came out with the NLT second edition within years. Normally, you know, a, a major, not, not minor revision, but a major revision takes several decades. They did it within like four or five years. And it turned out to be a not bad. But it's like the NIV, except it's much looser than the NIV. Uh, so it's, it's in the same category as, um, yeah, anything just left of the NIV get, puts it in there. So it's a, you know, it's a thing that you might want to look at to get insight into a text as to what it, um, what it might mean, especially when it's using Biblish language. That he's like, oh, what are they trying to say? So there, it's another tool in your toolbox. I would uh, make use of it like everything else. But Okay, but let's go back to Romans 3.21. And so what Phil read was, here we have this righteousness of God, which has been uh, uh, manifested, as it says here, um, this righteousness which God has, and we see it in the Law and the Prophets, uh, which we so desperately need. It's a righteousness of God, which comes to us how, it says, and we'll explicate this later, it comes by faith in Jesus Christ. To who? To everyone, it says, that believes in, chapter, uh, in verse 21. 
Um, so it is by Jesus, this Redeemer. I just wanted to point that out that, you know, again, this is not stuff that we're making up. We always want to show you one text. But that's the key thing there. God takes the initiative and his salvation comes to us by a Redeemer. All right. Other things that we want to point out, again, just by, by way of review that undoubtedly uh, Scott hit on, was that the way he does this is by electing some. Now, we're going to talk about that in a moment. I want to deep dive into that. By choosing some. And the first question that comes up is, oh, is that fair? Did you guys deal with the fairness question, Scott? The fairness. Okay, so we, I think we're going to hit that question a little bit. Um, is that fair? God's choosing some people. What does it mean that he's choosing some people? So let's hold on to that for just a moment. The next part of the catechism says, says that he chooses them to enter into a covenant of grace. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about that. So we have two covenants that we see in Scripture. Anybody remember the name of the first covenant? Works. Also has another name that was referred to in the catechism. Somebody remember that? Life. Hey, you guys are on the ball. It's called the covenant of works because Adam is being asked to do something, in this case to obey, uh, and the obedience is uh, not just simply don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, but it's also be fruitful and multiply and, you know, marriage and labor and all those. By the way, those things are creation ordinances, just by a little way of reminder. Um, uh, so marriage is not a punishment of the fall, men, uh, just letting you know. Uh, neither is work. Now, it's true that in the curse of the fall, you see those things are being addressed. In the curse in Genesis 3... God addresses labor, and he says, pardon the repetition, there's just no way in English to get past this, labor becomes laborious. <laughs> what was meant to be an enjoyable, because, you know, there are moments where you actually enjoy your work, and you're like, you know, this is, this is great, and, you know, but then there's those tedious moments and so on. Your work will become laborious. He was to work the ground before the fall, but after the fall, the ground produces thorns and thistles and fights him every step of the way. You rebelled against me, now that which you have dominion over will rebel against you. That's the curse in terms of labor. Same thing, marriage was meant to be this uh, expression of the relationship, the deepest possible relationship between human beings, reflecting the relationship between God and his people. After the fall, it changes and it becomes uh, less than ideal and it becomes a battle, literally the battle of the sexes. Brandon will be speaking about this in two weeks, right? A little bit uh, when he does his next sermon, so we'll look forward to that. So these are just, uh, you know, the consequences um, uh, that we get of the fall, but uh, the point is Adam was being asked to not just simply not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, but also to do all those things. And he fails, and, uh, and therefore, we get into the estate of sin and misery. But it's called works because of that. It's also called life because had he sustained his probation, and it was a probation, it was not to forever, there was a period of time that he was gonna be tested. We're not told how long that was, uh, how long that would have gone. But had he done that, he would have been confirmed, confirmed in life. Now think about that, that's what's happened with the angels. The angels had a choice. Uh, unlike, we won't get into all the details, unlike with human beings, where one human being, is put on probation as a representative of all. That was Adam, and later we'll see with Jesus. He also is our representative for, the, for redemption. 
all the angels are put on probation and those who passed are confirmed in their holiness. They're unable to fall. And those who failed are confirmed in their uh, unholiness, their unrighteousness, and they uh, uh, become what we now call the demons. But that's, that's what would have happened for Adam. He would have been confirmed as we expect to happen in, uh, in glory for us. Um, it did not happen. And so therefore, God makes a covenant of grace and I, the, the reason I'm bringing this up is I want you to see something very important here. Because sometimes there's some confusion, confusion as to terms. And let's face it, you know, that's because we haven't done a good job teaching. So let's, let's try to remedy that. The covenant of grace is God saving, not just, just as we read in our catechism question. It's saving his people out, you know, those whom he's elected, which we'll deal with in a moment, but it's saving his people out of that state of sin and misery of which that condition of sin and misery of which we've been reading uh, in the question. And he does so through a redeemer. So that's what he's doing through Jesus. Okay, I want to be sure that you understand that when we talk about the old covenant and new covenant, you hear that language being used also. It's not referring to this as the old covenant and this is the new covenant. Okay, they actually are down here. They're actually part of the covenant of grace. When God initiates the covenant of grace, does anybody know when he initiates it? Genesis 3.15, right? Not with Abraham, not with Moses, not even with Noah. Right from the garden, the very first thing he does. Now, we're going to see this later, but what God does is he administers the covenant differently. And in the Old Testament, Testament, older word, Old Covenant, New Testament, New Covenant, in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, God administers the covenant of grace differently. Paul tells us in Galatians that he treats us as, a children, as children who are underage in the Old Testament. And we come to our maturity in the New Testament as a people, as a, as a, um, as a church. That's the distinction between old and new. Um, he even changes from Genesis 3.15... Then he goes to Noah in Noah chapter nine, uh, Noah chapter, Genesis chapter nine, then to Abraham in Genesis twelve, fifteen, and seventeen. Then it moves on to Moses, the book of Exodus, primarily uh, chapters twenty to twenty-three. Uh, so that's the Mosaic covenant. And then he comes to the Davidic covenant, Second Samuel chapter seven, and those are the major iterations of that old covenant. The thing that we see that's interesting, and if you uh, were in the class that we took, I can't remember, maybe last year it was, or maybe two years now, it all kind of blurs together. We were talking about biblical history. You know that God reveals himself progressively through the Old Testament, actually through the New Testament as well. He starts with a little bit of information, and it kind of just grows like a spiral as you go along. What you see happening in the Old Testament, right from the very beginning, God says, I'm going to save you. And what happens as you read your Old Testament, you learn more and more progressively. That's what we call a progressive redemption. We learn more about who God is. He reveals more about himself and his character. And remember, God doesn't just reveal himself in, um, in uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically, just in, in statements. Uh, God doesn't reveal himself just by saying, I am this, I am that. I, he reveals himself in action. 
It's not to say that there aren't things that talk about who God is. First John 4, 8, God is love. You know, you get statements like that. But for the most part, we learn and we see God in action. You do have him speaking about that and reflecting on it. But throughout the whole of the scripture, we learn more about who God is through what he does. And yes, what he says as well. But you also learn about more, more and more about what he's doing for mankind. So those are the two things you see progressively revealed. Who God is and what he's doing for us in Christ. You'll notice when I did my opening prayer, when I said, I said, help us to understand better who you are and what you are doing for us in Jesus. And I do that again and again, not just in this class, because that really is what the Bible reveals. And it's what you have to learn. Um, as we study the Bible. Those are the two things. But you see them increasing so that David knew a whole lot more about what God was planning to do for saving than Noah did. So it's that progressive revelation. It doesn't change. It doesn't supersede in terms of, uh, uh, you know, contradictory knowledge. It just keeps layering on. Does that make sense? Yeah? Yeah? That's a key, uh, and we won't get into this here, that's a key insight. Once you grab that, you begin to understand how you read the Bible. You don't read what's in Exodus the same way you might read something that comes much, much later in the time of the prophets during the time of the kings. They don't have the same information. They don't, you know, so there's going to be changes. And what we see God doing is changing the way he administers the covenant because they are growing, Israel, the Old Testament church, is growing progressively in its understanding of who God is and what God is doing for them. And as they grow, God administers the covenant, the old covenant, differently. Now you might say, does that make sense? Let me ask you this. If you're a parent and you've raised a child, or if you yourself were a child, were a child which might qualify for all of us, um, you uh, don't treat children the same way from age birth through 18, right? You don't change, or you shouldn't. They don't change, and they're still, you know, little human beings that are your children, but their understanding and their maturity and their ability changes, right? So you don't ask uh, a newborn uh, to clean its room. It's incapable of doing that. You don't ask, if your two-year-old goes to, uh, towards the hot stove, what do you say? Uh, what, are you, what are you trying to communicate? Hot means nothing to him. Don't touch, it. don't touch it. Okay, what's the principle behind don't touch it? Is it that the stove is evil and it must not uh, be dealt with? <laughs> no, I mean, really, what, what is it you're trying to communicate? Yes, yeah, so there's a potential for danger and so on. But when that same child becomes 16... And you say, hey, um, it's really busy, it's your turn, uh, go cook dinner. Have you contradicted yourself from what you taught him or her when they were two-year-olds? What's still operative? Don't burn yourself, be careful. But they lacked the maturity and the ability before to do anything other than not touching it. That was the only way to, to deal with it at the time. Later, they gained the ability and the maturity to be able to engage that stove. Does that make sense? That's what you see in the Old Covenant. The different administrations is God saying, and Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter three and four. As we grew, he changes how he administers the covenant. And then the covenant has its pinnacle in the ultimate revelation of 
who God is and what he's coming to do for mankind, that comes in Christ, the new covenant. And with Jesus, all those things that were uh, markers that pointed to him, signs that, that, that prefigured him, like sacrifices of, of bulls and goats and those sorts of things, all that was pointing to what he would do. He's the reality. Those were simply foreshadowing. Those were simply the signs and markers pointing forward to him. Those aren't necessary anymore because you have the reality of who God is. Jesus says, when you see me, you see the Father. John 14, right? Um, uh, you know, Philip, how can, what do you mean? You, you don't get it? I mean, you can just see him just, he's Jewish. He's going to say, oy vey. And, and, you know, on and on. Okay, sorry, couldn't help myself. But um, what, you, what you easily pick up here then is it's one covenant of grace. It is administered differently. It gets referred to as the old and new covenant. But the old is not this. It's the same administration covenant grace. Now, I'm going to just take a little um, detour here and talk about something called the covenant of redemption. There have been those folks, if you've been around Reformed churches, you know that sometimes the problem of being very interested in learning and studying, which Reformed people have always been, is that you sometimes don't know when to stop. And it does happen. And of course it happens in other, other communions, you might say, right? Uh, it's when you become wiser than the Holy Spirit and you go beyond what the scripture teaches, okay? And it happens all the time. Any of you been in PCA or OPC churches and heard about superlapsarian versus infralapsarian? Did you actually hear that from the pulpit or from a Sunday school class or? Did it come up in something? In conversation, okay, in conversation. So this is all you need. Uh, you walk into a church and you're not familiar with Reformed people, and next thing you know, they're talking about, are you superlapsarian or are you infralapsarian? Well, I believe that I'm superlapsarian. Why do you believe that, brother? We need to talk. And so it goes on and on and on. Okay, superlapsarian, infralapsarian, just simply has to do super above, infra below. Has to do with where the lapse, the fall, falls in God's eternal decree. God, did God decree that he was going to create? Did he decree then a fall? Did he decree then a redemption to save those who had fallen and so on? Or did he decree that he was going to have a redeemed people, but since he had a redeemed people, then he have to have a fallen people, so he has to redeem a creation, and he has to redeem a fall. Uh, uh, he has to uh, decree a creation and a fall if he's going to redeem. You see that? And John Calvin said, really, just stop it. He said, you can't climb into the mind of God and look at the order of decrees because it's not been revealed to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things are of the Lord, but the things that are revealed are for men to understand and to do. So stop trying to speculate. That kind of is what Calvin was saying. He was right. Along those same lines, there were some who started saying there's another covenant called the covenant of redemption. And I won't go into too much detail here, but the covenant of redemption is, again, an intra-Trinitarian covenant where the three persons of the Trinity covenanted with one another to save, to implement the covenant of grace. The problem with that is that it does not fit the definition of a covenant, which I do want to get into, uh, because I think defining what a covenant is changes how you look at the whole of the Scripture. So I'll just say for now, this whole idea of a separate third covenant that happened in the councils of God is one not revealed to us. Now, we know God chose. He decreed to save. And obviously, that was an inter-Trinitarian decision because God acts. The three persons are one God. 
That makes, that's no problem at all, saying that God decreed to save. Gotcha. But the fact that it was a covenant does not work, one, because it's never mentioned as a covenant ever in Scripture. And two, it doesn't work uh, because it does not fit the definition of a covenant, which we want to take up. And I'm looking at our time, and I haven't even gotten into election yet, and um, hopefully haven't even stepped on anything that you've been uh, teaching last week, Scott. The, the point being then, is these are the only two covenants that are actually revealed in Scripture, the covenant of works and covenant of grace. The fictional, or I shouldn't say fictional, the speculative covenant of redemption, at least for this pastor, uh, is off the table. Now, there are some churches where I've been, Reformed churches, where they are absolutely adamant on the covenant of redemption, but I think that has been falling away quickly, uh, and that's probably a good thing. Let's let, that, let's let that one die. Oh, you did, did you? I did. Is it in Michael Brown's book? Okay, which one do they talk about in G.I. Williamson? I don't use, I have, we haven't used Strong in a while. I'm going to have to take a look, so slap little G.I. upside the head. Uh, no, you never would do that. G.I. Williamson, I think he might still be alive. He's like 100 years old. I, I'm, not, I'm not joking. Um, and he's, he's an incredible dude. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't think the covenant of redemption works. Um, okay, so the one thing then that we do want to say here is that the covenant of grace, how does it work? You've got to see that what it actually does is it fulfills the covenant of works. There's no real mystery to the covenant of grace. What the covenant of grace is, is and the reason it's called grace, is because you and I owe God, Right? Romans chapter 5, Paul says, why are you still dying? You're still dying because the covenant of works is still in effect, right? The covenant of works says, obey me perfectly. None of us is obeying God perfectly. In fact, we're incapable because it's, it's not that we're put on trial individually. We're already born with the imputation of sin because Adam is our representative and so on. But the covenant of works, Paul says in Romans 5, the very, very, um, let's see, verses 11 through 12, uh, I think are the ones. In Romans 5, he basically says, the reason you die is because the covenant of works is still in effect. Uh, death is the consequence of disobedience for the covenant of works, and therefore there's death. And it reigns through all men, he says. And then he, he jumps into talking about the new Adam, uh, the old Adam, the original Adam, and then the old Adam, uh, and the new Adam, Christ. But the covenant of grace is God graciously doing what we couldn't do, fulfilling the covenant of works. So that's an important thing to realize, because... It also helps us to understand, we'll unpack this in detail as the catechism goes into it. God required you to perfectly obey. We failed to do that. On top of that, we accrued a debt because of our disobedience. So there's two things that have to be dealt with. One is the debt, and then still is the life of perfect obedience. Jesus does both, right? We tend to think about Jesus dying on the cross and the debt that he paid, and sometimes we put exclusive emphasis on that. That's 50% of it. That's half of it. His death pays the penalty. It brings up, if you want to think in terms of accounting, brings us from infinitely red to zero. But to sustain the covenant of works, you're not at zero. Adam was at zero when he started. You have to be at infinite obedience. You had to have obeyed perfectly. Jesus does that too. His life and, and his willingness to die is all perfect obedience. Does that make sense? So both aspects 
are necessary. Now, the theologians attach names to those, and everybody agrees the names, whoever attached them, should be shot because uh, they're terrible names. Uh, active and passive obedience. Jesus' active obedience is his fulfilling God's law. He actively did that. And in the idea that he died in our place, paid the debt for our sins on the cross, is called the passive obedience. Because the idea was that he sat there and he passively took upon himself the punishment. But, it, it, but the word passive makes it sound like he was not active in it. No, I mean, he chose to do so and so on. So uh, they're not great terms or whatever. But, you know, J. Gresham Machen, who actually was the founder of the OPC, when he died, and he died uh, suddenly, as it happens in those days, uh, traveled to North Dakota in the middle of winter, because you don't do that, um, and, and it, he got a cold, and he died from pneumonia or something like, like that, uh, just kind of like suddenly. He was like visiting a presbytery. I was in presbytery last week. Imagine you just go to presbytery, you think you're going to come back, and you die. That's what happened to Machen. But as he lay on his deathbed, he, he told John Murray, uh, in, in, a, in a, not um, John Murray, who is a great theologian, Scottish theologian, uh, they weren't there in person, but he uh, telegrammed him, which was a thing back then. Active obedience, uh, active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. He recognized, you know, and you look at good men, and the good men are the ones who all sit there and say, I've done nothing, I'm useless, I haven't done anything for the Lord. And what he was saying is, I need Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfect record of obedience is the one that's given to me. So anyway, that's what the covenant of grace is. It's God graciously doing what you and I cannot do, which is fulfilling the covenant of works. Yes, absolutely. Yes, because that's all pointing to the fact. In fact, let's talk about this very briefly because we only have how much time. So we still haven't jumped into election, but what defines a covenant? Did you get into that, Scott? Okay. Yeah, there's just so much in this question. The covenant as a whole, um, when you think of the word covenant, we tend to think of an agreement. And we think, oh, there's this covenant, you know, in my house, because mostly now the only place I ever see it being legally used is like in housing, in um, homes and stuff. Uh, you might have, um, um, oh, what do you call these uh, little Nazi groups that, um, yes, uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, they might have, yeah, sorry, I shouldn't have said that, but, because uh, we have one in our area too, um, but uh you know, when the, when the lady goes driving around in her little car just looking, oh, he's got a big wheel in his lawn. Okay, true story, true story. We had to change the grass on the front lawn because we have two big oak trees and that kills off whatever, I don't know what the native Texas grass is, but the one that everybody's got doesn't like shade. Uh, so we, had, we put in zoysia grass, right? Zoysia grass, much more shade resistant. Okay. The dudes come in, the, 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 landscape, the uh, landscaping people, they come in and they got their truck and their truck's got those pallets of, you know, of grass already ready to go. They pull up the old grass. You've probably seen that happen. So when they pull them all up, our, our lawn is bare. And the next thing they're going to do that same day, they're going to put in the new grass. Okay. Takes them about half a day to pull up the old. They stop for lunch. And what do I do? I see in my mailbox... A violation, and it and, and you can see the ladies taking the picture out of her pickup truck. Cause you can see the frame of her car window. In the picture is the truck that says landscaping. The pallets of the new grass are right there. Our Mexican workers are sitting there eating their lunch, so they're not going to be doing this three weeks. From now. They're right there, and she cites us for not having grass on the front lawn. 
that's HOAs for you. So please understand when I say fascist or Nazi, it's if it's. By the way, we did not pay that. I just told them what they could do with their <laughs> with their little uh, violation or citation. Say again. That's right. That's right. Fight the system. But that's where you use, see the word covenant being used, and it's the idea that there's an agreement between two equals. But that is not at all how you see the word covenant being used in Scripture. So it's just kind of how we've adapted the usage. Covenant was something that actually was part of the culture, and we see this again and again and again. God condescends to our human weakness, and he speaks to us in language and in forms that we understand. The very fact that he speaks to us in language. God doesn't need language right? We need language. It's part of our creatureliness. It's how we reflect God's image, but it's just a reflection. The reflection is never the reality. So we need language, just like we need, you've heard me talk about before, you need hands and you need eyes. You need your physical form to be able to reflect God who himself is spirit. But since you lack the omnipotent power to just simply say, quote unquote, say, and so it is, you need your physical form to manipulate matter and to do all that kind of stuff. Likewise, you need language in order to communicate. God does not. But God communicates. He condescends to us in how he does things. So one of the things he does is he makes use of the forms that are uh, already in culture. And so a covenant was a very standard agreement that would occur between primarily nations or groups. But it always happened between a superior and a subordinate. And if you look at the ancient Near Eastern world, that would be your sovereign and a, and a vassal state. And so um, I'm going to go ahead and erase this progressive revelation diagram. So you would always have a sovereign and a lesser, a subordinate, just in old terms, a vassal. You know, a vassal state, for example, that kind of thing. Uh, perfect example. We've been talking a lot about the South Pacific. American Samoa, or more close to us right now, Puerto Rico, those are not states. They are territories. They are, in essence, the sovereign is the United States, and they are the vassal states. They are less than, they are subordinate to, uh, and so on. Uh, That happened a lot in the ancient Near Eastern world. So Assyria would conquer uh, a nation, and they were the sovereign, and that nation becomes their vassal. They, don't, they didn't just come in and wipe out everybody and then uh, take over and move everybody in. No, they would establish puppet kings and so on and, you know, and that kind of thing. You see it in Israel happening. They would put the guy that they wanted and so on. And then they set some terms. And there's something very simple. Uh, here are the terms of our agreement. You will produce X amount of your, uh, your produce, whatever it is that you do. It's wood or, you know, wood and lumber or whether it's grain, or, uh, whether you mine for ore, for gold, for silver or copper and tin. Whatever it is, you're going to give me a cut, right? It's basically like the mafia today, right? It's exactly the same sort. Oh, you guys are not from New York or New Jersey, so you may not know that, but that's how that works. Um, <laughs> and it's been going on since the beginning of time. So you're going to give us a cut. We're going to come by every six months or every once a year, and it's called tribute, Right, and you, you, you give them their tribute. Those are the terms. And there may be other terms. Uh, you'll, produce, you'll do X amount of workers. You see the same thing flip side when Solomon is now at the top of the empire and he's going to Lebanon and saying, you guys are going to give us X amount. And it's all put in these wonderful terms. Oh, we, we so love this, this relationship with you that we want to give you that. Yeah, they would have gone in there and crushed them and, you know, and all that other stuff. And that's always the terms. 
you will do this. If you don't do, and if you do do this, this is legal. Uh, this is the way the documents were written. Here's the blessings. Here's all the good things that are going to happen. You'll be protected, right? We won't come in there with our baseball bats and smash your store and break your knees. Okay, and you watch, watch The Sopranos so you know all about how that works. But if you don't obey, if you disobey, then here are the curses. We're going to come in here and we're going to, you know, finish off what we started. You know, we came in, we, we sacked your capital city, we installed the puppet king. Well, that's just the beginning. You'll get much worse. And that actually happens again and again. And so even, that, that's on a national level, but the same sort of thing would happen even on an individual level. But an individual is not equals. It's always a sovereign to a subordinate. Okay? So, for example, when we see God making his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, one of the amazing things that happens, oh, wait, you know what? Let's hold that story. Let's hold it for a moment. Because there's one more element that we've got to talk about. The terms of the covenant are laid out with blessings and curses, and we have tons of legal documents, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the uh, Hittites, the Amalekites, all that. So this is a very common um, uh, legal arrangement of the time. God is using that. He's the sovereign. We're the subordinate, just in case that wasn't clear. And, he's, and he, the, the thing about a covenant is God, uh, the, the sovereign dictates the terms. The subordinate does not dictate the terms. Okay? Again, this is why the intratrinitarian covenant doesn't work. There is no superior talking to a subordinate. But the other thing about the covenant is that it would be ratified with a sacrifice. You read ahead. Uh, yes, just joking. So a sacrifice was the way that you ratified it. What was the significance of the sacrifice? It was offered by the lesser, by the subordinate. And the idea is, if I don't fulfill the terms of this covenant, what happened to that animal may it happen to me. You see how that goes? So this animal is sacrificially dying. He's dying in my place. Okay, now you can look at Genesis 15. The animal is cut up, which was normal for that. Just, it's just one of the ways they did it. They would cut it up, and they, it talks about passing between the pieces. You would lay out the, the pieces of the animal, and you would pass through it. And you were basically were saying, uh, I take the, it's just a symbolic way of saying, what happened to this animal is what should happen to me if I fail to fulfill my end of the bargain, uh, not bargain, but my end of the covenant. What's amazing about Genesis is uh, the Abrahamic covenant is, does anybody remember the story? Who is the one who actually passes between the pieces? God does. I mean, it's, for us reading today, you know, we just, oh yeah, whatever. But the shock of, wait a minute, you're the sovereign. You dictate. The lesser is the one. And instead God is saying, no, I will suffer the consequences of this covenant, which I'm establishing. It's already giving us foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do. But those are the terms of a covenant between a, less, a superior and a lesser, a superior and a subordinate. The superior lays out the terms of the covenant and it's ratified by a sacrifice. If you look at the book of Deuteronomy, which, you know, the book of Exodus is uh, the first giving of the law, but it's done so in a historical context. Here they are, they were in Egypt, and you know, Moses comes and he saves them, and blah, 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 and so on. And it all gets condensed into the book of the covenant, which is chapters uh, 19 through 23. Of Exodus. But the book of Deuteronomy as a whole is a covenant document. It's strictly 
other than the very beginning prologue and the very end. It is strictly a presentational law in all its fullness. Hence the name, Latin Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. And it's laid out. The interesting thing is, it is exactly laid out like any other ancient Near Eastern covenant document. It starts with a prologue, it lays out the terms, it gives the blessings, it gives the curses. And an epilogue. Exactly like you find if you look at the Amarna tablets from Egypt or any of those other things. So that tells us something very, very important. God condescends to our weaknesses. He speaks to us in language and in forms that we understand, but then he makes them his own. Uh, if that's the case, then you can, uh, I'm gonna steal a um, definition from O. Palmer Robertson. O stands for Owen, but he doesn't go by that. So it's O. Palmer, he goes by Palmer Robertson, uh, Old Testament theologian who has taught in all the major reform seminaries at Covenant, Westminster, RTS, even at Knox. And... Um, Palmer Robertson describes a covenant as, four words, is a sovereign bond in blood. And there it encapsulates everything. There's a bond, there's a relationship. We're being brought into a relationship in the covenant. It is a sovereign relationship being established by the sovereign and it's done in blood. That is the sacrificial element. There's a cost to maintaining that relationship. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, we haven't gotten very far, have we? <laughs> so, okay, I think we're gonna, uh, it's 10.05, so let's go ahead and start wrapping up. So that's covenant, that's a, a short crash course on what makes a covenant. God uh, establishes this covenant of grace based on that ancient Near Eastern way of doing things. And you see that happening all throughout. Okay, uh, let's stop here now. We could go next week into question 21, uh, which is the question on, on Christ as the Redeemer. Or we could do what I thought we were gonna do today if we didn't get to it. That's election. So let me, let me set the stage. If you wanna talk a little bit about election next week, then I'm gonna ask you to bring your questions. I'm gonna ask you now for any questions, anything we did uh, today. But I know Scott dealt a lot with election in terms of how this fits in. I will probably review that briefly. God chooses people for him to save. What we're gonna deal with is the objections to uh, election, the big one, of course. It's not fair. We'll deal with the other election, uh, the other objection. If God elects, then I can't do anything about it, so it doesn't matter what I'm doing. Uh, If I wanna be saved, I can't be saved because God didn't choose me. Um, And and so what's the point, right? Those are all significant objections. Uh, objections are also significant misunderstandings of what the scripture teaches so uh, why don't we deal with that next week unless you all sit there and say you know what I have none of those questions I I got it perfectly Uh, but if you have let's bring plenty of questions next week we'll make that our election week and um, hopefully we'll um, get it okay Um, and and we'll uh, we'll go from there but any questions on this stuff that we've covered so far today Or, or comments or statements or heartburn or anything. All crystal clear? I either know I've done a great job and you have no questions or I've left you so befuddled that you don't even know where to start asking. Okay, my, it's, it's that one, right? Okay, thank you. Matt's always there to affirm me. I wrote a pastoral recommendation for you for uh, Corum Deo, which is exciting, by the way. Yes, so I'd like to ask you about that later. Um, so, uh, good deal. Um, No questions? Okay, let's go ahead and wrap up.
And we'll get ready for worship. You guys know today we're doing our annual congregational meeting. It's a big shindig and all that other stuff. Uh, so uh, we want to be sure that we start worship service on time. I don't usually help that by going way over <laughs> Sunday school. We'll try to avoid that today. Okay, let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you are the God who has taken the initiative in our salvation. Father, it breaks our hearts to see how mankind has consistently, recognizing that there is something wrong with the world, but has consistently then tried to say it's within our power to, to fix it. And there's no doubt that there are many great intentions, and there's no doubt that there are many good ideas and initiatives, but they cannot overcome the brokenness that is inherent in human nature. It is the curse of the fall. Father, you would have been wholly justified in leaving us uh, as we were. You would have been no less good and no less perfect and even merciful. But in your compassion and in your mercy and because of your grace, you have chosen to act and to take the initiative and to do what we are incapable of doing through your son, Jesus Christ. And for this, we are indeed eternally grateful. You have upended the whole of the world and you have changed the order of things and you have changed us. And for this, Father, we are thankful. And we pray that as we continue to work through the catechism and more importantly, the catechism illumine our understanding of scripture uh, as we uh, uh, unfold what, the, what those doctrines are. We pray that we would increasingly be appreciative as we see you at work, not just in creating, but in redeeming. And as uh, we looked in the Old Testament and we see you progressively more and more learning about your character, uh, not just in the things that you say, but indeed the things that you do that show you to be gracious and compassionate and merciful, also show you to be just and holy and righteous. And those are not in contradiction. And we thank you, Father, that they all came together on the cross of Jesus Christ where your holiness was satisfied in the death of your son and your compassion and your grace was on full display as he died in our place so that we might live. Help us to understand that and to, uh, to process and to fathom the, the many um, uh, layers of, uh, of that truth. Help it to change the way that we live and especially our response to you. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.